Welcome to episode 16 of Once Upon a Lifetime. Welcome back to this third episode on Andrew Carnegie. We left him quite wealthy and getting ready to dive into the world of iron making and steel making. And so that's where we're going to pick up the end of the Civil War. And he is in his early 30s. The thing with iron, and this is interesting because he already has some foresight into this way back then in 1864. It's not actually going, you're not going to see this come to fruition until I think 72. So a good eight years later. But when he founds Cyclops Ironworks, he's already thinking ahead to steel, to manufacturing steel. Steel is better iron. It's kind of a, it's purified. It has a lot of the impurities taken out of it. But it's so expensive to make at this point that no one can pay for it to build anything with it. It's just, it's cost prohibitive. So it it exists in the world, but it can't really be utilized until they come up with a better process for purifying it. Mm. Um, But he already knows at this point, he's making, he begins immediately rolling iron to use as tracks for the railroads. He's making railroad ties, railroad tracks, and 50% of iron made in the U.S. is already going into tracks. So in the next 15 years, it's going to be 80% of all the iron in America is going to tracks. Well, where's all of his connections with the railroad? Absolutely. So he's just got all this business right away. Um, everyone knows that he still works for the railroad. You know, everyone knows this is kind of a sweetheart deal. <laughs> There's no conflict of interest. I mean, that's not really a thing then, is it? I guess not. It's so weird to think about now, but mm-hmm. it just was not. That was the way businesses worked. It right. wasn't a conflict at all. It was really considered just being smart. But he believes that there's going to be a way to manufacture steel faster and better coming down the pike. So he, over the next few years, continues to invest and lose a lot of money in, into testing various processes to make steel more efficiently. So right. he's already got his, his eyes are already kind of set. He has an ironwork, ironworks factory. Mm-hmm. He's already looking ahead to steel. So that is important. Well, he knows that the first men who figure this out are going to be just super, super rich. Yeah. The other thing he's doing, and I think this is interesting because he decides to leave it out of his biography. And in my first set of notes, I took my notes from his biography, basically. And I didn't realize until later when I read David Nassau's biography that in my notes and in the biography, there's a five-year gap where he just says nothing about his life. There's just Hmm. no, no information between... 64 and 69. Um, It is because during this period of time, he is building wealth in a way that he is not proud of. And he later goes on to recommend to state that this is not what you should really do to build wealth. This is not respectable or helpful. Mm -hmm. He he's speculating instead of manufacturing, instead of creating a good or a service that is of use to the people around him. He is using his money to make more money. And he really does not respect that. 
in other people and he doesn't respect it in himself. So he just kind of doesn't talk about it. It's not what he wants to highlight about his life and his autobiography. For example, he's not proud of the fact that he would have an insider set of information about where a railroad line would be put. So what he would do is he would buy acres and acres all along the railroad route before anybody else would know about it. And then as soon as the railroad, where the railroad, new railroad is going to be put was announced to the public, he would start selling off that property for tremendous amounts of money. He also, um, this is my favorite example of the kind of using your money to make more money thing that he actually doesn't respect. But I, I think it's entertaining that he did this. Um, he made up a telegraph company on paper. He made it up. I mean, he registered it and everything. Mm -hmm. He sets up a contract with the Pennsylvania Railroad, which he still works for, to string telegraph wire along their existing telegraph lines. He makes this deal with the Pennsylvania Railroad. Well, Western Union is the behemoth of the whole telegraph world. And they hear about it and they're like, no, no, no. We can't let some upstart get a contract with the Pennsylvania Railroad. So they get into a bidding war with another railroad company, or I mean another telegraph company, to buy him out. He ends up making $150,000 for doing absolutely nothing. He did nothing. He never strung a single line. So he actually denounces this kind of thing. He does not respect it, but he did do it for five years that just her, like... It's like secret, secret money-making skills. You want to talk about the draft notice? Right. So for the first couple of years of the Civil War, um, Carnegie is exempt from the draft. But as things go along, he finally does get a notice. And he thought this was just going to be impossible, that because of his job, he would never be called up. But at that time, it was illegal to hire a replacement for yourself. So he went through an agent and this person connected him with an Irish immigrant named James Lindell to fight for him. And Andrew paid this James Lindell $850 to take his place in the war. And he thought it was more patriotic than because he he also had the option legally to pay $300 and just sit it out altogether. So he thought it was far more noble to pay someone else to fight for him. So it sounds outrageous now, but J.P. Morgan did this. Um, Grover Cleveland did this. And the wealthy father of Theodore Roosevelt did this, too. So um, some people kind of talked about this practice being um, the Civil War was a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. Right. At the age of 30... 1865, he decides it's probably about time to retire from the railroad. He has decided he wants to be a very wealthy man. Okay. I mean, he already was. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) Why? Yeah, exactly. Nothing's (laughs) stopping him. So he thinks that having this day job is not really effective anymore. He's already made the connections. I think, you know, he's trusting this relationship he has with Tom Scott and Edgar Thompson. He doesn't actually have to be in the day-to-day of the railroad business in order to be using it for his own investments. So the other thing that happens to him is after he resigns from his superintendent job is he realizes that he's kind of dumb. 
Like he's sort of started hobnobbing with these fancy people with their fancy educations and their, mm-hmm. you know, fancy culture. And he is aware of his own lack of formal education. It kind of alarms him. He starts to feel really insecure and uh, think, you know, like, I'm a smart guy, but I don't know anything. And he decides he's going to invest in his own education and become a man of letters. So in order to pursue this new education, he invites four friends to go on a year-long grand tour of Europe because... He realizes he's never been to the capitals of Europe. When he was in Europe, he was too Mm -hmm. poor to go anywhere and do anything. So he wants to go. He wants to see the museums. He wants to hear operas. He wants to go and experience culture. So he puts Tom in charge of the businesses. And this kind of begins this thing that he does all the time. He just trusts his partners. Right. And he just delegates and then does his thing. That's right. So they actually start out on a, which sounds amazing to me, this walking tour of England. And then they go over to the continent and they do all the big cities of Europe. And his friends are like can barely, and they're all a little younger than him, but they cannot keep up with his energy and his enthusiasm. (laughs) He has all those years to make up for. He does. He's he's just an exuberant guy. Yes. About whatever it is he's doing. And right now, he's touring. Yes. He's going to tour like it's never been toured before. You know, I am the same way. I I have this real affinity for him. I'm like, I get you, Andrew. I just dragged my whole family around Europe for a year. So I'm like, hey, you and me, we're the same, except you have a lot more money. (laughs) Um, he published travel articles in journals as he went, which was another part of this conquering the mountain of I will become a man of letters. You know, he starts to kind of publish these, which was a big deal. Then everybody was publishing travel letters. Right. Um, then well, so one of his friends writes home and actually says to his mom, it is extremely difficult to keep him within reasonable bounds, to restrain him within limits of moderately orderly behavior. He is so continually mischievous and so exuberantly joyous. <laughs> exuberantly joyous. Yeah. I love it. I just think he's in high spirits. He is eating his cake and having it too. You know, he's got the businesses because he's kind of keeping up with Tom about the business. Mm-hmm. Urging Tom to straighten this out or, you know, divest themselves of these investments here or what, you know, he's got all sorts of plans, but he is living the high life and loving it. So here he is. He's 33. 1868. He comes back from Europe. He's now a millionaire, by which I mean a 75 million millionaire. He's worth 75 million dollars. Oh, my goodness. A lot of that is wrapped up in his factory though it's not as if it's all liquid um his annual salary is fifty thousand dollars a year which he finds to be more than adequate he does not need to ever draw more than a fifty thousand dollar salary again he's gonna put any excess over fifty thousand dollars back into a company into investments he's kind of still looking around for what exactly is going to be He's going to put all of his eggs in one basket. He doesn't. He does not really want, believe in this diversifying your portfolio thing. What he says is, find all the good eggs, put them in one basket, and then watch that basket. 
I think that's so smart. Oh, I mean, yes. not necessarily smart, but I love that he, he did that on purpose. Right, it, right. No, it, it seemed to work for him. Yes, it did. And he also, at this point, he's starting to kind of feel a little bit of like some qualms about making the, this much money. It's just, it's so much. He's afraid it's going to become an idolatry of sorts. He actually says all men must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. That's in a letter he writes to himself. It's like he's checking himself. Like you've been working hard. You're really amassing an enormous amount of money. Why? What are you doing with this? At this point, he can hardly, he can't help making money. He's awfully good at it. I don't think he could not make money. It's just, it's inevitable. It's going to keep piling and piling up. Right. He, because I think that more than a love of money, he has a love of industry and work and and such a strong ethic. Whatever he's going to be doing, he's going to be doing with all of his energy. So it starts to alarm him that if he's putting all of his energy into it, that it's just going to keep piling and piling and piling. Right. So. And he doesn't want it to corrupt him, more or less. He He's aware that money can be corrupting. So what he decides to do is that he's only going to work in the mornings, but that he'll spend his afternoons in, he puts it, securing instruction and in reading systematically. So he will educate himself. Yes. This is going to happen. Then he says, I will make more money for two years, and then I will move to Oxford. It will take me three years to get a good education at Oxford. Then I will move to London, and I will get a controlling interest in a newspaper, and I will devote myself to improving the lives of Britain's poor through the media. In your spare time. Yeah. This is this is his plan. <laughs> this is the plan. That's the plan. Now, he does not do most of those things. Right. But he does actually do the, he only works in the mornings, mm-hmm. and then he spends his afternoons culturing himself. Wow. It's this same instinct that he gets from his relatives who were fighting so hard in Scotland for equal rights and for freedom and for the the freedom to improve your status that gives him this ambition to improve his own situation. But and it also makes him kind of a ruthless businessman, which seems contradictory, but it also keeps him very deeply concerned for the good of the common man. And he really wants he has a drive to create opportunities for other people to take if they have the drive to take it themselves. So he really believes deeply he becomes an absolute devotee of Herbert Spencer and what I would call capital P progress. And here is where he finds kind of the answer to this question for him, which is, okay, I'm making all this money. Is this bad? Is this good? What do I do with all this money? And in the philosophy of Herbert Spencer, he says there are certain people who are going to naturally rise above the rest. This is a very kind of evolutionary idea. You're going to, some people will naturally rise above the rest. And this is because they had what it takes to improve society as a whole. So it's not for that one person's benefit that they rise above the rest, it's for the whole of the community that they fulfill their sort of evolutionary place. Right. And if they do not succeed, if they sort of give up on their role, their evolutionary role, that is a detriment to the entire society. So all of a sudden, Andrew has, 
he was going to make the money anyway. <laughs> he's just really good at it. <laughs> now but he has a purpose. Now he's got a purpose and a kind of moral purity in his own mind mm-hmm. about doing it. He's like flawed, but it's making sense to him. Oh, it makes perfect sense to him. He does mm-hmm. not see it as flawed at all. He no. sees it as this is the answer I've been looking for. So, I mean, he becomes an almost stalker of Herbert Spencer, <laughs> really. And Spencer is this like dour, recluse kind of guy oh, who's gotten all this fame and he hates it and he hates people and he's <laughs> very grumpy. And then you've got the like cheerful Scotsman, right. like, oh, oh, all bubbly and so excited and like, oh, you've answered right. all my questions and you should come and, and be with me in my vacation homes. And Herbert's like, oh, leave me alone. <laughs> But he does, he gets really, I think it takes the place of a religion for him. Because really, at this point, he has no religion. He's long ago put aside any of the religious traditions he was brought up in. This idea in the inevitability of capital P progress and his clearly more evolved role in that progressive movement, that to him is the religion. That's the idea that drives him and makes sense of all of these divergent parts of him. Right. So now it's his duty. He's going to continue doing all of this to help the world. It can't be wrong. He's going to help the common man rise to their heights. He's going to put all of his energy into it. And so wherever he puts that energy, it's just it's going to benefit everyone. He's no longer planning on retiring at 35. He's planning on doing something amazing with all this money. Um, 1870 comes and Congress passes a tariff on steel coming in from the UK. So as I said before, steel is very expensive. But now with the tariff on steel coming from England... Andrew knows, oh, this is it. It's inevitable. It's happening. It's happening. It's progress. Yes. This is capital P progress right. for America. We got to get on this and figure out how to make this steal. Right. So he's actually on this trip. In 72, he's on a trip. He's 37 now. He's in England. He's kind of stuck there, actually, which I'll talk about in a minute. But he meets Henry Bessemer. And the Bessemer has invented this process. What would previously have taken two weeks to make this much steel, he can now make in 15 minutes using the Bessemer process. So this is the answer. It still requires some testing. It's, it requires different kinds of ore. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's not perfect yet, but this is, this is looking very promising. The difference between steel and iron is just a matter of a few percentages of carbon, but it makes all the difference. All right, steel. Have you seen that documentary, the, um, oh, I think it's History of Us, America, the History of Us, where they do all of these cool, almost like, it's like CGI type things. Mm-hmm. There's the the episode that covers this period of time shows how the landscape changes. Oh, and this the really, skyline and the, yes. Do yes, you remember yes, that? Like, yes. first, there's the one episode where they lay out all the rails Mm-hmm. for for the railroads and then there's the other episode where it like shows kind of the the bridges the, the bridges and the skyscrapers all coming up i mean all of this to me it's very vivid it's a very sort of powerful that's a great they do a great job in that documentary right, of showing right. these kind of rapid changes it's all because of steel i mean just our whole modern way of life would 
really steel is at the heart of it. We don't think about it that way, but... Um, no, it really is an entirely different landscape because we are not that far from the like little house on the prairie, covered wagon kind of days, and it's just a few decades, and and all of a sudden every everything's right. changing. And iron, you could only get so tall because it had so many impurities; right, it would get right. brittle, it would crack. So he goes in with Coleman again. Now this is the same Coleman who's the father of his sister-in-law, who he went into oil with. Coleman is a good eye, I think. He he also is seeing these kind of technological changes. They decide to go in together and buy a, a new steel plant at Braddock, PA. And there's two major ingredients in the production of steel. One is coke. We talked about this before. One is coke. And one is an iron ore that is low in phosphorus. Mm. Braddock was perfectly positioned between the major caches of those two elements and was connected to both of them via the railroad. So this is the perfect spot to build a steel plant. Also, almost everybody else who was producing steel in America had to kind of retrofit their iron plants in order to make steel. But this new Braddock plant was going to be the brightest and the shiniest and the newest and the best. It was going to be very high tech, made for actual steel production. Um, they name it the J. Edgar Thompson plant in honor of the old railroad crony. This is kind of a an homage to railroads. Tip. Yes. Kind of like, oh, see, it, it, first of all, he's very respected. Thompson's right. very respected. So they think it gives them, because they're kind of the new kids on the block. Right. This gives them a certain gravitas. Like, oh, Thompson allowed us to use his name. Right. See, right. we're not, we're really not no that fly new. fly by night, sir. Yeah, yeah, you can right. trust us. You can buy your steel from us. Thompson's the name of the, of the company. Right. He then has to hire a superintendent of the plant. He hires Captain William Jones, who you've got to keep in your mind because this man becomes very important. And Carnegie is nothing if not a master of picking kind of the right people for the job and then leaving them to do what they do. He does not micromanage. Mm -hmm. I mean, he only works in the mornings. The rest of the time he's reading and riding horses. Systematically. Systematically reading. (laughs) So another reason for his vast success here is that he pours so much of his money back into this this is the basket he's decided these are the eggs <laughs> right this is the basket he's found the thing this is the thing and this is his duty to the world to fulfill his evolutionary purpose so he is going to in fact all of his partners are like gosh couldn't we keep some of the money for ourselves and he always says no no, no take your salary and everything but no what we're doing is biggering and biggering our factory. And this is also important. The biggering is important because... Biggering? <laughs> the, yeah, the Lorax, you know. Yes. Biggering and biggering. <laughs> he biggers the plant because the steel manufacturers in the U.S. got together and they would set a price for the year. They would all agree on the bottom line price and nobody would go below that price. So people think that he kept his workers working for minimum amounts of money and that they would, you know, he worked them so hard mm-hmm. because he wanted to undercut 
other people's prices. But that is not true. He never did that. In fact, when someone once did do that, he really got on them. He was very upset about it because there was a kind of gentleman's agreement that they would all sell their steel for the same rate for the year, which was a negotiated rate. The reason he made so much money is because his factory had more production value. He was able to make more of the steel than anybody else because everyone else is retrofitting their iron factories, but he's not. He's just making this from the get-go steel. So he gets contracts, believe it or not, to produce steel for rail lines. Amazing. I know. Everyone's decided that iron is no good for rail lines anymore. The war has sort of shown that it can't deal with the weight of the the artillery it was moving on the rails. It's just not working well. People need steel rails. It lasts so much longer. So he starts immediately rolling out rail lines for steel at this first plant that he has. That is how it's built, is to actually build steel rail lines. Eventually, he's going to get another plant There he's going to get a contract to make battleship armor for the Navy. It's the largest U.S. Navy contract ever given to a company. So the Ironsides? Mm -hmm. He's making that steel. Wow. Yeah, the plating for that. Um, Canned food is another thing they're using steel for. Yeah, which is also new things. Because of the Bessemer process and it being made so much more efficiently, the cost drops from $160 a ton to $7.50 a ton. Oh, my goodness. When that happens, Carnegie owns at least one quarter of the steelmaking market at this point. When that happens, everyone starts switching from iron to steel. And even though Carnegie has already bought his own coal furnaces, he's going to need more. And in enters Henry Clay Frick, who... We will talk about in the future, but put a pin in that. So 1873, he's now 38. Andrew and his mom moved to New York City permanently, which is sort of a weird time to do it, given that he has this new steel factory in Pittsburgh. But like I said, he's the master of like putting other people to work (laughs) (laughs) and saying, you know, go with it. I don't know. There's that kind of like a light hand is not always a bad idea. So what's he doing in New York? There's lots of things in New York. There's operas, there's concerts, there's salons where he can go have these like great radical discussions, which he loves. There's also babes. Oh, yeah. Yep. So Andrew is obviously he's still he's unmarried. He does have lady friends. But, you know, like we said, he's very straight laced. These are just ladies who are friends. And he enjoys their company. But at some point during his life, he's made this promise, whether it was extracted from him or he offers it, he promised his mother that he was not going to get married until after she dies. And Mother Carnegie, to her dying day, would always tell anyone who would listen, there's no woman good enough to marry my Andra. So this was all well and good until 1880 when Andrew meets Louise Whitfield. And Louise's father is friends with a Scottish businessman named Mr. King, a friend of Andrew's. This Mr. King brought Andrew to visit the Whitfields, and he became a friend of the Whitfields and a frequent guest. And Mr. King once suggested to Andrew that he ask Louise to go riding in Central Park with him, and she loved to go. So he would often have other lady friends with him riding, and she became kind of one of the, uh, one of the 
the squad. Yeah, and and it's interesting too how this is the only way Mm -hmm. for a youngish man and a young lady to be alone. They could be riding together unchaperoned, but that was the only thing they could do unchaperoned. Absolutely. This is very much Edith Wharton's New York still. It's stodgy. It's formal. It's just, you know, lots of structure, lots of rules. And in the background, too, his mother is kind of just enjoying being, you know, Mrs. Carnegie. And I don't think she wants anyone else to take that title and that influence and that attention away. Yeah, it's a little strange. And I keep wondering if there's just a gap of time. You know, I mean, maybe this was just done more often where I read a statistic where, you know, 50% of men were not married by the time they were 45. But by the time they were 65, only 20% weren't married. Hmm. So it it might be something about this, like where, where the young men go out make a fortune. Right. And then much later than what we think of is, I mean, I always imagine people getting married younger, but I don't think that this is that crew. At at this time, she's about, so she's coming up on 23 and he's coming up on 44. So as it happens, Louise is also very industrious and serious minded for a lady of her age. Her parents really saw to it that she did have a good education, that she could have ideas. And he found her to be really interesting and engaging to speak to. And so it really kind of sparked maybe like a little bit of a romance with them. And they really began to bond over a book. He had read a book called The Light of Asia. And he was one of the first in the U.S. to read it and praise it. And so he gave Louise a copy. And so together they would just kind of like exchange quotes and ideas and write letters about it. And it was one of the things where they could kind of write romantically about something that was romantic and not really kind of, you know, like in an indirect way, talk about romantic ideas. So this book was like a huge influence in bringing them together. And Louise used to carry it with her wherever she went. And she even took it on her wedding trip. And her copy on the flyleaf Andrew had inscribed on on that trip, you know, like spoiler, they get married. But on their wedding trip, he writes... The first gift I ever gave to my wife, then the young lady Louise Whitfield, was this book. Reading and quoting it at times to her, I first discovered that she had a mind and a heart above and beyond those of others of her own age. And from that day to this, seven years, I've kept on discovering new beauties of mind and character in her. And day by day, I find that this list is yet unexhausted. She seems to have been made to turn the earth into a heaven for me. Which was very sweet. Very sweet. Very sweet. And And I just think bonding over a book is about the best. Isn't that adorable? Yes. But it was not an easy romance. Notice that he said from that day to the seven years. There were seven long years. It is like, I mean, you want to shake them multiple times, both of them, during their romance and be like, stop it. Stop acting like this. And back and forth. Yes. Up and down and up and down. And we really don't have time to get into that immediately. So we will have to return to that in episode four. Thank you, Evan Cresto, for mixing and editing this episode. Join us on our Facebook page or at onceuponalifetimepodcast.com. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.